Hello, um, oh. I'm Benedict. Um, nice to meet you, Sam. Um, I'm a head of engineering at BrainHub. I'm taking care about uh, I'm taking care of um, engineers in our software house. This the because it's software house. The department is pretty quite quite big. Um, and can you share some words about you? I obviously read a lot uh, about you and I appreciate your experience, but maybe you can share with all of listeners. Sure. I can give a quick uh, background. Um, I'm Sam McAfee. I'm based in California, uh, just outside of San Francisco. Uh, and I've been here for, gosh, which feels like a very long time. <laughs> I came out to California in the late 90s, and um, I got started in technology during the, the first dot-com boom, and um, I've been here ever since. And so I, um, I my background in terms of functionally, you could say, is in engineering, uh, although I have a significant amount of product experience as well, so... I tend to straddle the boundary between engineering and product. So I started out as, as a web developer in the dot-com boom days. Um, I ran a, a software development shop uh, for about a decade, building lots of different products for different clients, startups, large organizations, um, the like. And so I've seen a lot of stuff over the years. Um, I've been an agile coach. I've, I've worked as a consultant, um, in uh, a couple, a couple of bigger organizations. Um, I've, uh, been in the trenches with at least 10 different startups through my career as either, you know, a co-founder or an early hire. Uh, and I've also worked, um, doing leadership development and innovation coaching at some some of the biggest organizations have worked with leaders at uh, Procter and Gamble, and Unilever, and places like that as well. So I've seen the very, very small, and I've seen the very, very large. And um, in the last, yeah. I would yeah. say, five years or so, my focus has been much more around the the health of organizations. So we like have the the tech teams, and we're building products, and we're talking to customers, and we're you know doing agile and all that stuff is great. And when I've really been looking more at the surrounding organizational health, the, the leadership, the organization structure, the communication styles, the culture of orgs, um, to make sure that they're promoting the right kinds of values and principles that help the product development actually go better. <laughs> So I work with a lot of leaders these days more on how to improve the, the health of their companies. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, it's actually the reason I, why I was uh, willing to, to, to really talk with you, because you have a broad, con, con, uh, broad experience, uh, numbers of different perspectives. And I appreciate that because there is a lot of, I'm trying to, to read a lot, to, to talk with people a lot about engineering management, technical stuff, but I'm missing the, 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 when people talk with me, they are usually missing the number of perspectives you can have as a product manager, as an engineer, as an engineering manager, and so on. That's, 
that sounds really good and uh yeah i was trying to, to i know it's not a like a key topic of but it's it's not like off topic of, of our uh conversation but i was going to ask you if you can tell me more because it's really interesting for me how do you think like can you recall these times when you start working uh in california doing web dev how this how do you remember these times what has changed from technical or engineering management perspective can you share some yeah i think so if i can remember it i'll fall back i'll try <laughs> um well yeah I, there are definitely so there are definitely a lot of things that have changed um but there are some pretty consistent patterns that remain really constant um that feel feel the same in different periods so one you know one one thing that's really different you know i think you know so i guess that period probably before before my time a lot of people mark the netscape ipo which i think was 94 95 somewhere around the, in the mid 90s as really kicking off the first wave of dot comers and I, mean, i didn't i came out to california in 97 i only graduated in 97 i wasn't really technical at the time so i only got in to programming like the very end of 99 but all my friends were engineers so i was like hanging out with them and talking about what they were talking about they were all here in san francisco working at different dot coms and so um the economically those periods of boom where there's a lot of hype and then a crash those are very common and consistent every time they happen they always feel the same for the people in there. so like i've been i've rode that boom got in at the tail end i there was a crash in 2001 uh to about you know we had sort of a recession for a couple of years And there was a recovery and then we had sort of like the real estate fueled mania that led to the great recession in 2008, another up and down. And then, um, there may have been some other hiccups in there. So if memory, this is so clear, uh, but you know, probably we were chugging along until I would say the pandemic and the pandemic had a, a huge impact on, on how people were working, obviously, how they were investing, you know, the markets all crashed initially. And then there was then a, again, a boom from, for some sectors that benefited from work from home. Um, and so I've seen these cycles going up and down and they always feel the same. I think we're, there's, you know, looking at AI even right now, and I don't want to totally talk about AI the whole time, but you know, it's impossible not to talk about a little bit. I, I think Obviously. that there's a lot of excitement that uh, there's no question that the tech, you know, the technology, the capabilities of, of generative AI are wildly impressive and can do all these amazing things. And like, I, I use it every day. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty groundbreaking. I think that people who are worried that worried or excited that it's going to literally change everything are probably overblowing it a little bit. And I think that there's a lot of inertia in the economy and the way that organizations are structured and the way that human behavior works 
that are going to make it just as much of a, a, a regular inflection point like all the other big waves of change that have happened before. So like, yeah, this is a big one. There's no question it's going to be impactful. But to, to, to treat it like it's nothing like anything's ever happened before is, is to really not know history very well. There are a lot of examples historically. Yeah, I where think the same. Yeah, that yeah. similar inflection point. Yeah, this is the... Yeah, exactly. so... This is the proper milestone, yeah. That's, I think that's the, the thing with, it, um, you know, with the, the original dot-com booms, like everybody, you know, everyone is get, needs a website. Like, so that, you know, they're, you know, moving towards like more e-commerce and people buying things online. That was pretty radical. Like that completely transformed the, um, you know, like it transformed the landscape of America. Like we don't really have malls anymore. Like people, I mean, we do, but like the whole retail experience, like whether you buy things in person or online, like that has been completely transformed. It, it's completely changed the way that a lot of, you know, jobs work and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's equally impactful. I think, you know, there are things around like mobile and, you know, smartphones and like cloud, like that also had like massive impacts on, on and they took a little while to play out. Right. And so AI to me is natural progression. Um, and it is definitely going to like rattle a lot of things and there'll be a lot of froth in the beginning and we can't really tell what's going to really stick and, and, and be permanent and what's going to be just hype. But when the dust clears, a lot of things will be different. That that is definitely going to be true. But I think we go through these cycles. Yeah, so I for agree. me, like having been through a bunch of them, I'm sort of like, yeah, it's exciting. But I don't think it's like the world is not going to collapse tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's not quite that dramatic. But this is speaking about cycles, uh, the, because I can see as well that we are on the rise of AI. Uh, the cycle is just starting, as you mentioned, or it started and it's uh, overtaking some, some part of IT. Not not every time necessarily, but as you mentioned, it's happening. Do you think we are at the end of this financial depression cycle? Like the, the, the I, we, we can see that venture capitals went from um, fueling uh, startups and the IT have some bad moments right now is it the end of this period what do you think how do you feel about it that's a great question that's really interesting i because so the way right now what i can see yeah yeah, my point was just sorry for interrupting there was some delay my my point was that i can see a lot of money only or maybe not only but in in most cases, uh, startups with uh, numbers of money, uh, uh, funding from the venture capitals, are usually related to AI. Like if you include that, this magic word AI, yep, yeah, let's do absolutely. it. Absolutely, I just heard about one this morning. The, the money, but yeah, yeah, well, exactly. What 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 are your thoughts about it? So it, it means that if you want to finish uh, with AI topics, it it means that. Uh, they were stuck with this low funding or something like that. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, there's a couple of different dynamics that are, that are coming together to make the current situation. Um, and it's really hard to make predictions. So I'll be careful about what I think will happen, but I'll, I'm, I'm happy to dip my toes in the water a little bit. 
one the thing that and you asked me earlier we were talking a little bit about like what do i remember from the dot-com days um technically i mean that's sort of the key thing right so one one thing to keep in mind is that as like there's a certain level of technology that we were operating with in in 2000 uh you know building a website you know like you had to deal with a lot of stuff a lot of low level stuff that is now completely automated away right so you know the process of you know i mean like we were literally like building and configuring and setting up our own servers and that sort of thing nobody does that right so the, and and then in terms of like there weren't really mvc frameworks at that time like there was one it was like struts basically and like a few other things and most people weren't really doing much with um with uh dynamic languages you know it was like i mean literally like in 2000 when i came on like we were still using Perl cgi right like you know php was just coming yes. online as being a popular tool so like languages of like you know javascript was terrible back then right like so a lot of the um you know, the technologies that I remember, I haven't thought about this in a while, so I'm glad you asked. Like, it was really clunky, you know? And we had to, like, slice things out of Illustrator files, and CSS wasn't very good yet. I mean, there was a lot of manual getting dirty in the code building that we had to do. And within about 10 years, you know, we had, like, boots, Twitter bootstrap, you know, like, revolutionized how you build UIs in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the browser, and we had cloud, like nobody was, you know, building their own servers anymore. Uh, AWS was coming along, even like EC2 and and S3. And, and so there are a lot of pieces where things that, you know, engineers have to do, uh, they, we build tools on top of that and push that stuff down to a level of abstraction. And then we start to operate cognitively at a higher level. Right. So it's like I didn't really work in assembly code, right? Like that was a previous generation because we built languages that could extract yes. all stuff away. So there's always this period of abstracting things away. And here's where it becomes financial and social. What what concerns me is that there is there's a, a pressure, like what well, a lot of what drives technological innovation in our society these days uh, and for a while um, is competition. It is com competition between two or many more organizations in a market. Um, and so that com competition to try to drive down the costs of producing the goods and services we produce, organizations will invest in technology, they'll invest in automation. I mean, they're getting value out of labor. So there's always like back and forth about how much the cost of labor. And then there's always, they're getting, um, you know, tools and equipment and machines to, to build services. Software is the same way, right? Like, you know, people who code are labor and the tools that they're working with have certain amount, you know, add a certain amount of productivity. And so as we continue to automate more things and move up layers of abstraction, uh, we're making it quicker and easier and cheaper to produce the same things. Um, the thing is, though, that we need fewer people 
to do the work that it used to take a whole team of people to do. Now, like one person can do with like AWS and ChatGPT or whatever, right? And so that has an impact because it affects the labor pool, which on the other end of the market means that there are now fewer people available to buy all the goods and services. And that constant pushing and squeezing basically creates the business cycle, right? Like we like, there's a big innovation. We don't need as much layer, labor, uh, labor. We lay off a whole bunch of people. And then in theory, like some people would say, okay, but then that creates a whole bunch of new jobs that didn't exist before. And then things kind of reset and come back together. And so there's this whole new wave of like new cottage industries all created and people get into it. Like that is true to a degree, but I think there really is a limit in the long run for how long that's that's really going to last. So my my biggest concern really is the impact that AI and venture capital, frankly, is going to have on concentrations of wealth, right? So like each successive wave from the dot-com boom to, you know, the Great Recession to like now COVID and, and you know, the boom. And now we're having a little bit of a um, the reaction to uh, inflation um, and, and then now high interest rates have really affected um, the funding cycles. So, so there's not, you know, money is expensive now. It wasn't before. So a lot of loan opportunities are, are drying up. And so I think that what you'll see is that there's some real concern that if we if we just like quickly automate everything, um, it's going to have a negative impact on the overall demand for goods and services, right? And so we might have a, a tightening of demand that then affects uh, companies' profit margins, and it would be tougher to break out of this cycle. So I'm I'm not really sure exactly what will happen, but I think we have to be careful about just hurtling forward without thinking of the social consequences. And, you know, AI for everything all the time. I'm not, you know, I'm not definitely not an accelerationist. I'm not a, a, a doomer either. I mean, I, I love technology. I love, I love using AI for saving me like millions of hours um, all the time. But I think there are social consequences for these kinds of things. And it's easy for us as technologists to kind of say like, oh, that's politicians problems. That's economists problems. Like, let's not worry about it. Like we're just going to build cool stuff and sell it to people. But I think we all have a responsibility to actually position our work within a society. You know, we are a society where we impact each other and we, we should have some degree of awareness and compassion for how our work affects the broader culture. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. The context, the business context you mentioned is really important, the business cycle and the social consequences of introducing such such things like yeah it's affecting also us as engineers um as i said and i saw your publication about uh let it was just checking my notes the soon tech jobs will design data so um, it's about in simple words robots taking over our jobs as you mentioned to to make a, a short uh, description yeah. of this article and i i wonder if in, in context of actually legacy apps and migration, um, how do you think, like, if you're an engineering manager right now, you're coming to 
to a CEO and you want to convince him that like, okay, we need to rewrite this application right now. It's detected. It's, it's, it's not yeah. scalable. We have a several reasons to, to rewrite it. And he's like, okay, but let's introduce some AI parts, AI concepts. Like, oh, I, I won't give you the money to, to rewrite it if it works. Like, let's talk about introducing new uh, GPT related um, functionality. Like how how right. to approach legacy migration apps and tech tech handling when everyone is crazy about AI? Like we don't need to write it; we just add some more for features, AI related. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to think about the the motivations for rewriting legacy stuff. Right. So. You know, if you think about if you think about le the legacy, like why you know how it was built in the first place, a lot of times. So I mean, these these are often systems that have have um, been around and they're chugging along, and they um, you know the reason we built the system in the first place whatever it is, is because it was supposed to take some kind of human process, like take this data and transform it and turn it into this other data. Basically, <laughs> most of it does that. Do it for um, me, yes. And yes. sometimes it's very, you know, like very convoluted and complicated and how it, how it does it. And it's doing a bunch of different things. And so the code gets, you know, really messy and there's few people who know how to operate it. And I think that if you if you look at a legacy system as a as a black box, you know you can you can basically say evaluate evaluate it on the on the boundaries on the interface boundaries. So, you know we we want it to do X if it can do X pretty well uh, and and pretty fast, then there's no need to change it, right? So I think that if you are an engineer or someone in engineering, an engineering leader maybe, where you have one of these systems that you either have to manage or you have to interact with, um, like it's always necessary to go to the CEO or to the leadership with an economic case, right? And so I think as soon as you get inside the black box, right? Like, so there's the, the surface area, the boundaries where you say like, you know, we don't know really what's going on inside, but when I ask, I give it this data and I ask for a report, generates the report, is generally pretty good. There's a certain point maybe where the needs of the business um, become such that the, the capabilities are no longer sufficient. And a lot of times you can, you can see that because the people who use the legacy application start to have a lot of weird workarounds, right? Like they're kind of using it in a way that it wasn't intended or like they get the output and then they have to like do a bunch of manual stuff to it to make it usable. They're like, oh yeah, I do an export and I put it in Excel and then I have to run all these formulas on it. Like if it starts to be this really weird kludgy thing, then what we're saying is that that legacy application uh, the, the percentage of time required to do that business job 
the actual automated code in the legacy system is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the total amount of time that we need, right? So if like, yeah, we run the query, but then I have to spend 14 hours in Excel making it into a report that's actually usable. Now we're like, most of our work is actually outside the legacy system. So we've identified that its capability footprint is getting smaller and smaller relative to what we need our business to do. And so that's one way of looking at its failure uh, to, to provide, uh, to respond to our demands. And then the other side of it is also um, its cost of, of maintenance, right? And so every once in a while, you know, maybe a lot, the business will demand that the system be made to do something new. And somebody has to like put on their gloves and go in there and like try to figure out how to get it to do one more feature, right? And and they often don't have testing. Um, there's not like automated tests and, you know, who knows, right? And so um, it's like going into the jungle, right? And so I think that like that, because if it, especially if it's a system that a lot of like core business is flowing through and like honestly the reason legacy systems exist if you think about it in an organizational context is because they do something that is a core function that nobody has wanted to change for a while because it's working that's what makes them legacy in the first place right like it's been successful over time so we still have it and so there's this paradox, yeah. like the kludgiest worst systems are the ones that have been around forever because it was our first business idea or our first product. And it's still there because it pays the bills and we're doing all this other stuff on top. But nobody wants to touch that thing because that's what keeps the lights on. So there's a paradox that like the worst systems in the basement are typically the, the pieces of the foundation that the rest of the organization is desperately depending on. Right. And so you can go to the leaders and say, look, our foundations are very fragile and it is like the cost of, incre of increasing its capability. Both we're increasing costs because we have to do stuff outside the system that's being ever more expensive because this it's not able to produce what we need. So we're spending more and more time transforming the output into the need the, the way that we need it. So we're not even using it as much as we used to. And when we do try to extend its capabilities, it becomes exponentially more risky and dangerous and hard and takes longer to add features. So at a certain point, the cost associated with continuing to use that legacy system will outstrip its value as uh, something to keep maintaining. And like the risk factor will, will, like there'll be a point where the scales will tip. And we'll say like, you know, we're spending too much money keeping this thing breathing. And there's a huge risk every time we go in there and change anything. You know, if we bring the system down, we're going to lose a million dollars in a day. Like, you know, who knows, right? And so we have to be really careful. And so, and also we've built all these safety procedures. So now it's like really slow and bureaucratic because you have to go get permission. You need like the security team to like check everything. And like, it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to make any change. So once a system gets to that point, it's probably worth replacing, right? So, but like you have to be able to show the economic case to leaders that it's more dangerous to keep using it than to replace it with something else. And the risk on the other side really has to be acknowledged too, because I have seen a lot of 
rewrites, a lot of second systems that the CTO or the engineering leaders confidently said, this is only going to take 12 months. We're going to use like whatever it was at the time. We'll use Ruby on Rails. We'll use Node.js. We'll use ChatGPT. Like, I don't care what it is. They're like, yeah, it'll only take us a year, you know, and we'll replace it and we'll have this brand new system. And then three years later, and millions of dollars over budget, the board was looking at the CEO like, you're in the, this replatforming project has been taking forever. What is going on? And so, like, we do have to be honest that we as engineers tend to be over optimistic about how long things are really going to take. So, you know, there's risks on both sides and you have to really carefully evaluate, you know, maybe it's like, okay, we're going to have to use this legacy system for another couple of years. Or like maybe we can replace just like a part of it at a time um, and kind of slice off usually uh, the strangler pattern, right? Like we slowly slice off pieces of it and, and build another system adjacent. And that actually will take longer, but the result will be a much more, uh, flexible and resilient replacement and then someday we can turn the old thing off you know that's kind of how i see yeah that it's always better than the big uh, boom, big boom um uh, migration yeah. and everything at once yeah everyone hates this. yes yes yeah yeah you, you the architect who suggested it in the beginning they're the ones who are like oh this is gonna be great i get to design this whole new thing with like a blank slate <laughs> and i'm gonna use all the latest tools yeah and then two yes, years yes. project those aren't even the latest tools anymore now there's new tools that you're like oh we should have picked well you know if only this language had come out <laughs> two years earlier we would have picked that one <laughs> well let's, yeah. well, let's write it let's start again yeah right. yeah <laughs> we have to rewrite I, it again I, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes oh, sorry <laughs> it's our <Yeah>. curse <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you mentioned something interesting. The the, the black books, the the legacy system is actually black books. No one knows what is happening inside, and it's related to CTO survey you you filled for us. And uh, I really appreciate the answers. You mentioned that modernization needs to be prioritized. Uh, next to background work, it needs to be a first class items for time box uh, with a product roadmap, full fledged project or initiative, and paradoxically. It cannot be usually estimated in advance, and uh, it cannot be because sometimes, it, as you said, the legacy system is actually legacy when no one actually knows what is happening inside. The previous engineers, um, yeah, they're all gone. Uh, they all they all have other jobs. Yeah, now. they all gone in civil wars. Yes, like right. We have some brief documentation. We have some code base, but it's broken as hell. And what what to do next? Do you think if I know that there are the people are trying to do that right now because what what should happen in, in at first from my perspective is to is you should conduct some kind of audit you should uh-huh. kind, you should at least try to verify what is inside you should at least try to to, to do a sketch of the diagram of architecture list of, yeah. of endpoints i don't know to start start in less brand way more generic like at least i know what is happening in the, how the data flow or something like that. Mm, yeah. Then you should go deeper and I don't know, focus on the, the code base quality. But my point is, do you think we will, would you be, would you at least consider it as a, as a manager uh, to, to replace the audit of the, of the team of, of engineers with the 
AI, um, like I have a number of agents and I'm running it against my coder base and I'm running it against my Jira tickets and um, pull requests and I'm gluing it together and I just need to chat with the GPT and this is my consultant. Like the chat will tell us, listen, uh, you should start with this and that approach and these are the main pain points of your application or we just stick with the make sure people will mix of both then like you have engineers and you have a supplementary uh, GPT model, maybe not necessarily GPT, let's say AI model doing that, that, that uh, boring stuff for you. Like I'm going yeah. to all tickets, I'm going to all for yeah. the base. So this is my report, um, report and, and, and th this report is telling you a lot and I will explain it to you as a, as a human being. Um, what do you think about it? Is it possible? Like, can you imagine that? And I don't know if, if you would use it, like I, I'm not an author of such products, so it's not advertising. Yeah, yeah. It's just, just interested uh, on, on your thoughts. Maybe someone is listening to us or he, he will listen and yeah. Yeah. I would say, I'm not sure I personally trust it yet that much. I think we'll get there, but. I'm, I'm, I would say that it, the, the, the AI that we have so far is really a good assistant or partner in solving some of these problems. Um, I mean, I, so I've, I've used generative AI to produce code and it was okay. It worked more or less. And like, that was cool. Right. However, I have used uh, the same sort of generative types of programs with, um, writing with copy a lot. And what I can tell you, and I think there are similarities that I want to point out here. What I can tell you is that the training set that, like, let's say like ChatGPT, for example, like even their, you know, private paid, most advanced version, like I pay for it. Sorry, I'm like playing with all the new stuff lately. Like the, the copy that it generates is like never, never ready for prime time. Like it's nothing you could possibly just publish, right? Like you're like, yeah, write me a blog post. It's always like sort of halfway there. And the, re and the reason is because think about the training set. It's got like the entire internet's worth of pretty crappy, mediocre writing that it's learned on, right? Like we didn't only give it brilliant, really good writing to train the thing. We just gave it a lot of language. And actually there's been a lot of research um, for like some articles about how um, some of the early training data for GPT was the um, public, the, the corporate correspondence from Enron the failed company in the nineties because they happened to have from the court proceedings, a huge body of language correspondence that was really cheap. So they could buy this giant training set. They're like, yeah, we were learning how to, how to write emails from ChatGPT, Whereas like half of its brain is based on Enron emails, right? Like I'm not sure that's really a good thing. So, and you can see it in no. sort of <laughs> garbage that it produces, right? Like, so if that is the case, for its command of the English language, at least in my case, um, you know, 
are we training these these AIs on exceptionally solid, beautiful, well-organized modular code, or it's just like lots of code? Because that's what you need to make LLMs work, right? Like, do we even have enough really good code in the world to train one of these models? Like, I'm not so sure. Most code sucks, right? Like, if we're really honest about it. Yeah. And so then you're running the risk. That the model is generating like subpar crap that might work black box again, right? Like, yeah, plug this in. We try it. Like, it's fine at the margins. But now we've like outsourced to something that we're not entirely sure of the quality of its output, you know, to do a job, you're possibly making the legacy system even more rickety and even more abstracted from any sort of human oversight. So I would say like, until that, until the models get good enough that that is no longer true, that they always produce like exceptionally high quality output. Um, like until I can tell robot to write me an article and it blows me away on the first try, I'm going to be really skeptical t trusting it to write me code that's going to run my business. And again, like I'm not saying never. I'm being a little bit hyperbolic on purpose, but it's because I am cautioning yeah. people to be sort of critical thinking as we're very excited and we want to automate everything, but like, should we? Like, There are a lot of things that humans are still really good at, engineering being one of them, that so far the robots have not really impressed me yet. But it's, look, it's accelerating really quickly. They'll probably get there at some point, but like I wouldn't do it this year. You know, I would definitely like experiment with it and, and man, using them as like a, as a, um, uh, a, like a pairing partner. Like I love the, the idea of CodePilot. I played around with it a little bit. I think like having the robot as, um, someone to bounce ideas off of or make suggestions and like it can accelerate a lot of the mundane work that we're doing. But I certainly don't think they're ready for any autonomous responsibilities in generating systems. But like I'm going to need to like fly my plane or call me an ambulance. Right? Like <laughs> I think that's a no. Uh, Alexa, Alexa GPT. Yeah. yeah. I asked about it also because I, I saw that a tweet uh, from uh, Martin Ubi. Do you know this guy? Um, famous and 10 times engineer uh, from Google. He's now working at Vercel as an engineering manager. Um, and he was talking like, let me just open it to, to, to just uh, say this. Um, so, we are also deeply, also very deep in into our migration of the main version Next.js application from Pages to HPP, APP, APP router supported by AI. And I was, at first, I was like, "Yeah, wow, that's awesome!" Like we have a research and development team in our company, like they are doing some AI stuff, not only just playing with prompts, just doing some. Fine tuning some models and, and so that they are really good at it. I was like, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's let's write our own tool to do such things. And then I was like, where you you call it the black box? Yeah. So I will rewrite something I completely don't understand to something I completely don't understand. Still, it would be just <laughs> it might be modern, but I don't even know how 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 it works internally. But okay, it works. I can see the tests are passing. That's great. Yeah. However, 
I still have no idea how to use it, right? And that's that's why I asked about it because um, it would be great to have such such tool, like the the audit team uh, compressed to number of agents uh, running mm -hmm. on the large language models. But I I also agree that it, it can be our assistant. Like you still need human to take a look uh, on the system to. My point is also uh, because you mentioned the, 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 the quality of code and uh, how the, the quality of code it's producing and quality of code it's land or on, but also I still feel like the AI models are strong with uh, seeing that complex connections between different parts of systems, different parts of modules, let's say the, 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 the way we, we can describe it, it's, it's not important, but the the, the services, the, the modules, uh, they they can't see these interconnections properly because they, they cannot understand the complexity overall of the system because code can be like, you can have a, a good quality code, right? But with a complex system, with the numbers of interconnections, uh, it still can be broken, right? Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking if you are using, um, we are using for audits, we are using also the um, static uh, language uh, analysis tools like Solar yeah. or sure. uh, linting tools. Um, are you using such kind of stuff? Uh, are you using uh, also ChatGPT for, or you may perhaps you are not doing this in person, you are encouraging I'm your, your team members, <laughs> your engineers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just that's why around. I, I correct my, my, my question. Yes, me, me too. Yeah, I was just thinking if you, you're encouraging uh, uh, your engineers, you're thinking at the, at the particular time to, to use that tools, except the traditional one, like, like the Solar Cube or, or something like that. Like yeah, I mean, just I, use the GPT, chat GPT. I think people are, are, are starting to do it like a little bit at a time and um you know i've heard i've definitely heard good things i don't have a lot of firsthand experience because i don't i don't spend most of my time in an ide these days um like a little bit but um you know not not a ton and so um i can only say from you know hearsay from secondhand sources of like the developer experience I mean, I think that like there is a lot of value that could be created around developer experience. So like making the making the process of like the whole idea behind the um that article that you referenced about soon the only jobs will be, you know, basically design their data. Um, and what's it, that, nice. and that article is like five, that's from five years old or so it's from like 2018 or even 17. Um, and you know, at that time it was already pretty clear that there was a lot of, you know, plumbing being done between, well, you know, the front end and the, and the data layer. And like, when I said design, what, if you read the article, what specifically is referring to is customer experience like like the idea of where you know marketing and ux and product management uh thinking around like we're trying to make something for a person who's a human who needs to use a tool 
So like that, that interface between the machine and the human uh, is a really important part of the business. And so you can like come up, you know, but like now what's neat about the generative AI stuff is like, not that it's replaced designers. Um, and there's a lot of like people running around, like, you know, afraid as well. That, like, oh, we're not going to use designers anymore. Like, journey. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you know what? Like, again, I've played around with the image generators a lot. It can produce some really crazy stuff. Um, it's really cool. Like Vercel has that new tool, just like, um, text interface to, to chat interface to generate uh, UI components. Yeah, V zero is pretty awesome. It's fun to play with. Um, but like you know, I think at the end of the day, like someone needs to have the quality eye to look at it. It's not actually designing the thing with your hands. It's the um, the discernment, the the judgment that designers bring to is this a good design or not. Like the, I don't actually have because I'm not a designer, right? So like V zero can produce much and stuff that like yeah, I'll be like I, that looks okay. Like I don't know, but I think there's some there's a level of expertise if people been around products a lot and have a lot of like ingrained kind of nuance and intuition about what's going to work and what's not, but to be able to evaluate what a tool like V zero is producing, like should we use this one? Should we iterate on it more? Those are actually human decisions that need to be made. Well, like, when do I stop asking it to change it and then take a version and test it with a customer? I think we have to, like, still figure out that feedback loop, you know? And so there there definitely are... Um, yeah, it's like back to what we were saying originally about is there are different layers of abstraction. It's definitely producing, um, you know, like abstracting away things that are, that are drudge work you know, like, and the code that I had ChatGPT generate a few times that I was playing around with it was not like super critical production code. It was more like, I need to transform a bunch of data into a spreadsheet that I'm going to use to make some best internal business decisions. And like, I don't even, I don't even want to figure out how to light these transformations. So like, you just make me a script that does it. And I'm <laughs> literally going to throw it away. Inspire and forget. You know, like I'm never, this is not like, you know, banking online, right? Like, it's just like a thing that it was like an internal tool, right? So, um, yeah, I think I think that, that there's still going to be, um, there's always going to be that need for, for human. I mean, I think there's a lot of power in human intuition, right? Like the human brain is pretty fantastically complex. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, right? Like, I think the idea that like... Yes, you, you can just yeah. make it equal just absolutely not and and you can make it yeah yeah interesting and and i think there's a lot of well there are a lot of metaphors about machine learning and artificial intelligence compared to you know our own biological intelligence which those metaphors are fun from a distance they make reasoning about things at a high level really interesting but they're just metaphors and they, and they do fall down. You know, like the, the human brain is, is fantastically complicated and capable of amazing things. And we don't even know how it works, right? Like, honestly, like neuroscience itself is still at like a very, very nascent. I mean, we learned a lot of yeah, cool stuff the basics, over the last yes. 20 years, but um, like so much, we you know, like what is the subconscious? Why do we have one? 
right? Like there's a lot of really fundamental human questions. And then we're like, oh yeah, we could just build a machine that's just like a human brain. Like, uh, no, you can't. We don't even know how the human brain works. What are you even talking about, right? So there's a lot of like, like kind of yeah. wild accelerationism that I think is um, not driven by people who have a very nuanced view of what to be human really is. And like playing with tools a little too much and forgot about the human side, right? So we need to slow that down a little. Yeah, that's 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 good phrase. Like like. I have a similar opinion. Like it's still to be like human fueled <laughs> a company. You need to be an engineer at the, at the human first. This is just like AI is just your happy assistant. It's always happy and always helpful. Like it can yeah. help you, but it's not the same as you and your brain. It it has nothing to to do with it. It's you can't compare it actually, or put an equal sign. Uh, in the middle of yeah yeah well i think we have to think about why like what you know what's the reasoning behind what we're doing and 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 not get caught up in yeah we can it's a little sort of like that line from uh, jurassic park right like you know yeah we can create dinosaurs but should we right is that really a good idea um, I think there's a lot to say about like, Actually, yes. you know, it, it could be cool. Maybe it's fun. Maybe the business feels like it really, it becomes economically necessary. Like, yeah, we have to automate. This needs to be faster. We have to have an AI solution for this specific business purpose. But because we're sort of so new in the generative AI, it's a lot more of like, hmm, what could we do? You know, every company is now rethinking like, what's our AI strategy? And like, they don't know. They just feel like it's the same thing happened with blockchain. Like Everyone's like, what are we doing with blockchain? Are we in the cloud yet? Like, we need to do something you know, you, with blockchain. We have to do yes. something because everybody else is doing something, even though I don't really understand it or know why it's going to help us in any way. But we got to have a, we have to have a strategy. And so if it's not driven by, this actually solves a problem that we have. And that's really worth investing in. Then it's a lot of like, fluff and they could actually have like damaging side effects if we're not careful thinking about where we choose to put it in right so i think that's like we're definitely going to have a lot more bad writing on the internet unfortunately because now like generative ai is producing all this blog content and it's like training on bad stuff and then producing equally bad stuff and then that's putting something. it online, yes. and then that stuff's yes. going to get used to retrain the model, right? Like, they're in this terrible writing feedback loop, right? So I worry about, like, human intelligence from reading so much bad writing. Yeah, yeah. But if I may ask uh, one more question or two, sure. Tony's to, to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, we'll have to keep uh, it tight. Yeah, yeah, we can okay. do it. You can try. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, it's it's really nice to, to talk with you, and I I know we are oh, yeah. uh, like. Oh, I wish we had three hours. Yeah, right? it's a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Once I will go to California, I will try to ask if you have. Yeah, any time. Absolutely. Love that. <laughs> that's that's great to hear that. Um, I was trying to switch a bit because uh, the, the topic staying in the legacy apps, but just. I was wondering uh, if you can share something a bit more about it. I saw on your LinkedIn 
uh, something about Popbox and the migration that did. Uh, it's not AI related, but it's still interesting because you said uh, that as a CTO of Popbox, I was chiefly responsible for transforming the web platform from a single monolith application into a scalable and flexible distributed system. Then uh, there is something about details. And I was wondering if you can just briefly, like, it sounds like it was successful migration at first. Uh, which is not happening often. Like people are yeah. not talking about failures, but this this would be my last question. But <laughs> uh, yeah. talking about this success, uh, can you can you talk talk more about it as as much as 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 you can do it with your NDAs with sign it as right. one? Because it's really interesting. It sounds like that was a complex system and the migration went well. And I'm just wondering, uh, I'm talking about technical stuff, but also the the process one. How you approach it? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I mean, like, I can give you some general principles. I think that um, I I would say it was successful in that the company ultimately started using the new system that we built and stopped using the old system that we built. So if that was the goal, <laughs> then it, it would be considered successful. Um, and, and it was continuing to go on uh, after I was no longer with the company. So um, uh, I wouldn't say that it wasn't all finished while I was there, but um, I was there from, from the beginning to say like three quarters, probably the way through. And I, and I, the way that we, the other thing that's, um, it, it wasn't a fantastically complex application necessarily there were kind of um really only a few main parts that uh you know that needed to be done i i think um what was successful was that there's a temptation uh to replace everything exactly as it was in the old system and there's also a temptation to add a whole bunch of new stuff while you're trying to move everything to the new system. Um, there is a famous engineering leadership or engineering book that many people will have heard of, uh, The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks. It came out in the 1970s. The Mythical Man Month is, is a, it's a series of essays, and the Mythical Man Month essay is about how uh, adding more people to a late project only makes it later, <laughs> which is still true. Oh, yeah, um, so I that Fred Brooks is famous for that. It, um, in that same book, another essay is called The Ses Second System Effect. Um, I hope I'm getting this right. I haven't looked at Fred Brooks's book in a long time. I'm pretty sure it's in Mythical Man Month and not uh, Tom DeMarco's book. In any case, there's an essay called The Second System Effect. That talks about in any attempt to replace system A with a new system B, there's a lot of pressure to add as many bells and whistles to the new system as possible. Because if you're going through the process of replacing everything, you might as well make it better. So <clears throat> I knew that was a risk. And what we did instead was um, we were very intentional about and it's starting from scratch and rethinking, let's actually rebuild a system that's only able to do the, the core key things that we want the new system to do. 
and not try to re replicate all the functionality that the old system had. Like we really intentionally picked the 20% while it was producing 80% of the value, you know, the Pareto uh, curve. And, and we also were very intentional about just getting that working enough to start having people on it. And then we can start to innovate and add more things after that's finally done. And we were pretty disciplined about it. And I think it, I think it turned out. That's funny. I was, I was talking with clients uh, of, of our company today and I was trying to to say pretty much the same thing about starting with the small bit, producing even small business value, just to be prepared to, to be innovative enough later yeah. uh, and just so small, um, have the, the That's baseline. That's the way you got to do the, it. The, exactly. That's, that's, that's well, fine, really. Like I... I, can, I think about it as really experienced uh, engineer, like the, the guy who, who saw, as I said, as a lot of small and big things. And it, it's, it's really nice that uh, I, really, like, I, I really think that uh, the, the, this is the same way we are thinking, that you can also prove that it works. Like I, uh, I saw a lot of failures. And speaking of which, this is my last question. I was just wondering if you can say, if not, I understand, like, I'm the guy who you mentioned at the, at the beginning of your, uh, of our conversation, um, uh, I'm the guy who missed estimations by one and a half year. <laughs> and it was the, uh, on the previous, uh, on the beginning, at the beginning of my career, or maybe in the middle, when I was thinking I'm a wise guy, and like, so I was pretty sure that I will write it in one year. Uh, yeah. I'm that guy too, like, by the way. I've done half. that multiple times. That that is my question. Yeah, I was thinking if you can just briefly uh, tell me more about the the lesson, learned, the biggest lesson, learned, biggest failure, because I, I I'm asking about it just because I think people are just talking about the success uh, stories and yeah, that's perhaps that this is what the reason why a lot of rewrites uh, of legacy applications, uh, the modernization uh, process is a failure because people are just listening about the success stories and uh, the, they are not thinking about survival rate, right? You know, yeah. this, this paradox. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm asking about it. Can you can you share such a story? Um, yeah, I'm not like, there have been a number of times. So it's like hard for me to pick one specifically. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely I definitely in, in earlier in my career have fallen prey to thinking that things are going to be more simple than, than they are and have been um, really excited about the idea of rebuilding a new system and making it nice and clean and flexible and, um, you know, so excited about the possibility of doing it that, you know, it's a bit of a sales process to your leaders to say, we could really do this. And so there, you know, there's, I've fallen prey to the temptation to make it sound easier to them. So they'll say yes and get permission and then get started. And, you know, deep down kind of knowing like, well, I hope I'm right. I don't, I mean, almost like I convinced myself that it, it probably could work, you know, if we're just really careful, you know, and a lot of times it didn't work. As, as well as I had, had proposed. And, um, but I will, I will say like my final piece, and then I, I probably have to end with this, is that 
when you're yeah. in that situation, um, I think it's it's really important to make sure that you you start really small. So like you really identify just the core piece of functionality that that you is like the, the essence of that system and and build just enough to start moving the majority of users over to the new system. And in addition, like you have to really make time for like that has to be real work. Like that has to be part of the actual work. You can't do that in addition to all the other things that are just business as usual. You have to treat it like a first class piece of business project and allocate time to it and allocate a team to it and put it on the strategic list of initiatives and resource and budget it effectively. Like it is a real thing that can't be treated as like, oh, this is just some back project that engineering is working on and nobody knows what's going on. It's got to be like very open. Like we are rebuilding the system from A to B and, you know, make announcements that it's happening and it has to be like treated as first class work. It can't be just something that is happening in the basement that the CEO doesn't even really know or care about, right? Like it has to be a full kind of project with real um, investment or no one's going to take it seriously enough. Uh, and, and so I think it, it where it has failed has been where it was like on the side of other stuff we were supposed to be doing. And then like it never got treated with the amount of care and respect that it really needed. And that's when it really didn't work. Yeah, that was a really nice uh, summary of our conversation. It was great pleasure to talk with you. And I hope Likewise. I will have a chance to, to talk with you once more. And yes, thank you very much for your time. I and Absolutely. hope to see you once again. Have a nice yeah. day.